The scripture reading today is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, good morning and welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. 1 John 5, starting in verse 16. We are almost done with 1 John, and then we will do 2 and 3 John, which are very, very short. And then we're going to be diving into some of the Psalms, which should be a lot of fun. So, uh, but today we'll be in 1 John chapter 5. While you're turning there, this is a reminder that this passage is a very difficult passage. If you've ever read through 1 John, you've probably come across this passage and thought, what on earth does that mean? Am I going to commit some sort of sin leading to eternal death and be condemned as a Christian or whatever it might be? And so my hope is to be able to alleviate some of those fears as we look at the text this morning. Now, uh, to kind of set the stage for what we're doing this, uh, this uh, last week, uh, the staff was here and we were doing some planning for the sermon and that kind of stuff. And uh, we have these crosses on the west side of the church. We have this berm and we've got these three wooden crosses on this berm that the church put up many, many years ago. They actually put it up originally for kind of like a resurrection Easter celebration. And uh, it looked really nice, but over the years, those crosses had started to fall down and had uh, the wood had become uh, all rotten and these kind of things. So we realized this doesn't look great anymore, not because we don't love the cross, of course we love the cross, but because they're falling down and they're tilted over. And to be honest, we didn't want one of them to like fall on a kid because sometimes there'll be kids in the neighborhood that play up on that berm. And so uh, a couple of guys on staff went out there just to see, are these things dangerous? And so Jeff pushes one and it completely falls down. Okay, that's how uh, rotted the, the, the wood had become. And then Tim pushes another one and it just falls down. And then Jared, who is our man criteri, I'm just kidding, he's a real minister. He's a real minister. Uh, Jared uh, Lawson, our pastoral resident, he goes to push one and it is not moving. So I'm inside the building and Jeff comes and goes, hey man, look out the window. And Jared has the cross, he's hugging it and he is shaking it as hard as he can back and forth and it's not going anywhere. And so we said, well, we can't just have one of the crosses out there because it wasn't the middle cross. It was one of the thief crosses. You can't just leave that one up. And so uh, we realized, you know, we need to try to tear this thing down just so that it it looks good. We don't want this thing looking terrible. We want to take good care of our facilities here. But we could not get this cross out of the ground, okay? So at one point, Tim even tied a rope to the top of the cross and then tied it to his chest and he just takes off running and ka-ching, just stops, right? So we cannot figure out how to do this. Now, as we're trying to remove this cross, people are driving by looking at us like we're committing blasphemy, right? We look like some sort of atheist group or something like that who just doesn't love the cross and we're just tearing down these church crosses or whatever it is. While we're doing this, there is a police officer sitting in the parking lot just kind of watching us and laughing at us, I assume, okay? So finally, we're able to get this cross out and get it on the ground and the police officer drives up a few minutes uh, later and just says, I've always wondered what pastors did during the week and then drove off, which was awesome, right? Which was awesome. Now, in the same way that we were not being disrespectful to Christianity or something like that, we're actually trying to be more respectful. We're trying to make things look good here at Parkway. For those that don't really understand what's going on, it looked like we were just like this anarchist group tearing down crosses or something like this at, uh, at churches. And so uh, in the same way, you might have a misperception of this passage here in 1 John. You might think it's saying one thing, but really it's saying something else. So let's pray and then we will get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the Bible. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to uh, understand a very difficult passage. Uh, we pray that you would uh, quiet our anxious hearts We pray that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and we thank you. We ask all of it in Christ's name, amen. Well, we'll start with verse 16, and we'll start with the first half of it, what's called 16a, if you want to get really technical. Verse 16a says this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Okay, so let's break this down. Let's look at the first part here. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. Notice that this passage assumes that we are in community. 
It assumes that we are in each other's business. It assumes that we are in each other's lives, right? It it says that if you see your brother committing a sin, how are you going to do that unless you are in one another's lives? We are our brother's keeper. This text is saying that part of the Christian life is to do something when you see fellow Christians walking in some type of high-handed, walking in some type of unrepentant sin. If you see your brother in sin, and it's going to tell you here in just a second what you're supposed to do. But before we get into that, I want to mention some things you're not supposed to do, okay? So if you see a fellow Christian, by the way, this is just talking about Christians, don't go around and be that guy that's always rebuking lost people. You don't have to correct your lost coworkers for their language or whatever it might be. That's trying to get them to act like a Christian before they are one. This is specifically talking about Christians, okay? So a few things that you don't do if you see your brother in sin, and then we'll see what you are supposed to do. You don't just ignore it, okay? You don't just ignore it. You you can't just act like everything is okay if someone is in some type of really major sin. You don't just ignore it. That's one of the things you don't do. Additionally, you don't gossip about it. And you don't do the weird kind of Christian gossip, which is where you actually disguise gossip as a prayer request, okay? Y'all please pray for Martha. She's cheating on her husband, so we need to pray for her. That's my little old lady uh, in the country accent, by the way, if you were wondering. That's just gossip, okay? You don't gossip about it. You don't just share information because it's exciting. There are times to share other people's information, but it's to help that person, not just because it's exciting information to share, okay? You don't talk to others before you talk to the person in sin. I hate when people do this. If I have done something to wrong you, come directly to me first. Don't talk to other people first. Matthew 18 is very clear. If you see your brother in sin, you go to them one-on-one. You have no idea how many times in my life where somebody's come to me and said, Zach, did you say this or did you do this or whatever? And I'm like, who are you? You weren't even around. If somebody told you I did something, they should come to me. And the same way with all of us, okay? We've all probably had people come to us and say that somebody else told them that we did something wrong or whatever it might be. That's not how you handle it biblically. If somebody's in sin, you go to them one-on-one. You don't go talk to other people about it first, okay? You don't talk to... Now, there are exceptions to that if you're not sure what to do. It's a very complex, weird situation and you're getting advice from a pastor or something like that. That would be different. But on the whole, you need to go to the person one-on-one. You also don't, if you see someone in sin, become arrogant, okay? It's very easy. Let me say it this way. We have a lot of sympathy when people sin in the same ways that we do. So if you struggle with anxiety you probably have a lot of grace towards somebody that struggles with anxiety. But we have a tendency not to be as gracious when people sin in ways that doesn't make sense to us, okay? So I'm not really tempted to steal. I'm not much of a stealer. But if I meet somebody who's stolen things, I can't just say, what's wrong with you? I have to say, in the same way that I struggle with anxiety, they struggle with stealing. It's, they're both sin, so let's now address it. But you have to be careful that you don't become arrogant. It's very easy when you see someone else in sin to think, I'm not doing that. I read my Bible more and I pray more and I really try harder and then I just ignore my sins, legalism, right? Self-righteousness and idolatry of comfort, whatever it might be, because it's easier to point out somebody's sin that I don't really understand as well. That's not what you do either. You also don't annoy them on little issues. Notice that it says, sees his brother committing a sin. It's not just they have pride in their heart or something like this. What you, what you do is you don't wanna become that weird Christian who rebukes everybody for every little thing. What I'm generally looking for before I rebuke somebody in sin is I'm looking for a pattern, okay? If you stub your toe and say a curse word, I'm probably not gonna say anything. But if you're a Christian and every other word out of your mouth is like some sort of curse word, at some point I'll probably ask you, hey, what's the deal with your language? Or whatever the sin is. I don't, I don't just mean to harp on language. or something. Whatever the sin is, okay? So you you don't just nitpick on these little annoying things. I think the idea is when it's a more major thing, it's a a bigger thing, it's a habitual thing, you need to call your brother to account. And then lastly, what you don't do, you don't correct them for things that are not sin. Jeff gives a hilarious illustration of this when he was uh, in college with a roommate. There was a roommate that was like really mad and wanted to do like church discipline on him for like leaving the shower curtain open or something like that, okay? We don't correct and rebuke each other for things that aren't sin for things that are preferences, for things that are adiaphora issues, things that uh, vary depending on the Christian's conscience. You don't rebuke somebody for that. You, you realize there are a lot of things that are dumb or silly that aren't actually sin, okay? 
So I'll, I'll give you just a quick illustration. I was talking to a guy recently, and he's a, a medical doctor, and he said that in med school, one of the things that they would do is they would take this like numbing agent and they would inject it into their legs and run down the hall and see how far they could get before they fell over because their legs went numb. And I thought to myself, I should have been a doctor. That sounds exactly like what I would want to do like on the weekend or whatever, okay? Now, they didn't like steal the stuff or anything like that. It's silly, but it's not sin, right? It's not sin. And so make sure that you're not rebuking people for things that are not actually sin. Now, let's keep going in the text. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. That phrase, a sin not leading to death. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back. We're going to spend most of our lesson on what does it mean when it talks about a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. But hang on to that for now. We're going to come back to it. We're not going to skip it. We're just going to uh, skip it for now, okay? A sin not leading to death. Look at this next part. What should you do if you see a brother in sin? He shall ask, meaning ask God, and God will give him life, meaning the person who is in sin, okay? The, the, the person who sees them in sin shall pray and ask God, is really what the text is saying. And then God will give that person life through the person's prayer to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So notice what this text is saying. When you see someone in sin, the first step is actually not to go to them one-on-one. That's usually what we think of because of Matthew 18. It's really actually first to pray for them. It's to pray for them, Okay. It's to ask God. It's, th- this is talking about a ministry of intercession. We are our brother's keeper. One of the things that God has called us to do is to pray for one another when someone's in sin so that God might give them grace. One of the things that's unique to Protestantism is we believe in what is called the priesthood of the believer. What that means is if you're a Christian, you are a priest, okay? As a pastor, that's not what makes me a priest. This is my vocation. This is my calling, But when it comes to you and me, let me say it this way, who's closer to God, you or me? And the answer is that we're equally close to God because we're both in Christ. If I had to pick one, I'd actually probably say that you're closer to God than me because I'm this weird kind of anxious, doubting kind of guy and you're probably super holy or whatever, but we're equal. We're equal in our closeness to God. Why? Because of the priesthood of all believers. If you're a Christian, you're a priest or a priestess. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, okay? Uh, you can pray, not just me. You can read the Bible, not just me. You can pass out communion, not just me. You can actually even baptize, not just me. Now we prefer for baptisms to be done here at the church just so it can edify the body, but it's not like because I have a magic cleric, you know, sort of a power or something that you don't have. All Christians are priests. And so part of our job as priests, like in the Old Testament, is to intercede for one another, to go before God on behalf of one another. That's part of our job as Christians. And it seems like that God uses that in a special way. So let me mention a few passages here. Jesus says this in Luke 22, 31 through 32, when talking about Peter. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, meaning he wants to tear you to pieces. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jude 22 through 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. This is instructions to Christians. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. Augustine says, we must not despair of anyone, no matter how wicked he is while he lives, and we should pray with confidence for him of whom we should not despair. A few things here when the Bible says, if you see your brother in sin, pray for them. A few things here. First of all, I want you to understand this. Notice that God is sovereign even over the wills of men. This is one of the reasons why we're reformed. This is one of the reasons why we're Calvinistic here at Parkway is because we believe not that God is just sovereign over everything except humans and their free will, but we think God is actually sovereign over everything. If you're an Arminian, if you're not reformed in this area, you have a tendency to think that God controls everything except the free wills of humans, everything except the wills of men. The problem with that is that then God's not really sovereign. Biblically, God is sovereign even over the wills of men. If God is not sovereign, even over our free will, then why on earth would we pray for somebody? Why would you pray for your lost neighbor? Because really what you're saying is, God, please overcome their free will, which hates you, and give them new life. Or if your brother's in sin, why would you pray for them? Because you're saying, God, please overcome their will that loves their sin so that they would love you more. Praying for people's salvation or praying for their repentance makes no sense unless God is sovereign even over the wills of men. 
If God's just sovereign over other stuff, then he can't really decide who gets elected into office because he can't violate human free will. He can't really decide if Judas is gonna betray Christ because he can't violate human free will, whatever it might be, okay? Whatever it might be. Now, on a side note, I think that Judas also wants to betray Christ. So in that sense, it's not a violation of his will. But my point is, is that notice that this text assumes that God is sovereign even over the wills of men. Okay? He's sovereign over 100% of creation, not just like 95% of creation. But I also want you to see this. Look at this last phrase. He shall ask and God will give him life. Let me explain what's going on. Last week, okay, Jeff talked about prayer because this text talks about prayer. And one of the things that Jeff said, and it was excellent, was God is not your genie. He's not your bellhop. It's not just if you ask God to do something, he'll do it because he obeys you. That's backwards. You obey God. Okay. However, there are things that God, there are prayers that God will answer with certainty. There are prayers that God will answer that we can have confidence in because God has promised it. So, so if I pray this, dear God, please send Jesus back someday. God's going to answer that prayer because he's promised it in the Bible. Dear God, please make sure that you don't drop me and lose me and lose my salvation. God's going to answer that prayer because that's his revealed will in scripture. Well, notice what this text is saying. It's very important. This text is saying that when you pray for a Christian, you should have a tremendous amount of confidence that God will actually help them, that God will give them grace. Why? Because God cares for his children, his adopted children, you and I, okay? So let me give a little example. Uh, I've got two kids. Let's say they're playing out in the backyard, okay? Sometimes they'll come and they'll tattle on each other, you know, dad, Isla's playing in the grass. And I'm like, that's, that's totally fine. She's a human. She's allowed to play in the grass, right? But if one of them is in trouble, one of them gets hurt, and my son comes up and says, Dad, Isla's hurt, okay? I will go and I will help Isla because that's one of my kids and I care for her. Notice what's happening there. Judah, my son, in a sense, is making a prayer. He's interceding for his sister. And because she's my child, I will go and I will help her. Now, if my son says, Dad, there's probably a kid over in Russia somewhere who's hurt. I can't do anything and don't do anything about that. That's not my kid. So I think what this text is saying is not that anybody you pray for God will save or anything like that. It's not talking about lost people. It's saying this, that when you see a Christian who's in sin and you pray to God for that Christian, assuming they're really a Christian, that you should have a tremendous amount of confidence that God will give grace to that sinning Christian because that's God's adopted child and God cares about his kids, okay? That's what's going on here. Well, That's the easier part of this text to understand. Now let's look at verse 16b, the second half of 16. We just saw several times in 16a where it talked about sins not leading to death. 16b says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, what on earth is happening here? This is what's really difficult with this text. Throughout this text this morning, it talks about sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. What does that mean? There's a lot of different interpretations, so we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this. First of all, there are some people that think that sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death is a reference to intentional versus unintentional sin, okay? Intentional versus unintentional sin. Do you understand the difference? One is one that's kind of done by accident, right? You you, uh, are in traffic and you say a word you shouldn't say and you didn't really think about it. The other one, though, is premeditated. The other one is this intentional kind of sin. I'll I'll give you another example with my kids. So I was rocking my son the other night to sleep. He's four. And uh, there are these two girls in in the neighborhood. And I said, Judah, when you get older, are you going to marry one of those girls? And he said, yeah. And I said, which one are you going to marry? And he said, the older one, because it doesn't matter how big you are. And I said, that's right, buddy. It doesn't matter how big you are. You can marry someone of any size and of any age, assuming they're a Christian. Uh, and then he said, and he, I, this was not prompted. I have no idea where he got this. He said, you know, dad, but you know, if you marry someone and you don't want to be married to them anymore, you can just leave and go marry somebody else. And I looked at him and I said, no, you may not. That's what we get for allowing Brad Pitt to babysit you or something like this, this little Casanova, this little ladies man. And so we had to have a conversation that was very clear on divorce and remarriage. I had to say, Judah, when you get married, you cannot leave that girl just because you get tired of her and go marry somebody else, okay? We had a great little conversation right before bed. Now, he's four. When he says that, he doesn't really know. He's just spouting off ideas. 
Now contrast that with, with me. If I got up on a Sunday morning and I said, dear Parkway, if you're tired of your spouse, you're tired of that old ball and chain, why don't you just divorce them and go marry somebody else? That would be way worse. Judah's was unintentional, and that scenario of mine would be intentional, okay? Now, this idea has biblical precedent. This comes from the Old Testament. I'm gonna read from Numbers 15, 27 through 31. It's a long quote, but it's worth reading in its entirety. A long section here in Numbers, everybody's favorite book. Everybody's favorite book of the Bible. Numbers 15, 27 through 31. It says this. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Notice, there's this quick, easy forgiveness for those who are committing unintentional sin. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Meaning, don't make uh, discrepancies here, whether they're foreign born or national, okay? But, This is verse 30. The person who does anything with a high hand, that's like where you're shaking your fist in God's face. You hate God, it's premeditated, you don't care. Does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So in the Old Testament, there's this idea that there's unintentional sin that there's a sacrifice for. But if you are doing sin with a heart of hatred towards God that is unrepentant, that is premeditated, that is intentional, that there is not forgiveness for that, okay? So that's what some people think 1 John 5, 16 and 17 is talking about. What's the major problem with that interpretation? Here's what it is. We've all committed intentional sins. We've committed them a bunch. Yes, we accidentally sin, but there are also sins where we say, I know this is wrong and I'm gonna do it anyway. And we do it all the time. So here's how I know that interpretation is not correct. Any interpretation that would condemn all Christians ever is a wrong interpretation. Somebody's gonna be saved. So if your interpretation condemns all Christians, that's a wrong interpretation. Number two, what else could it mean? Well, what some people think is that is the difference between venial sins and mortal sins, okay? So let let me unpack this real quick. First of all, you need to understand that some sins biblically are worse than other sins. Please hear me say that. For whatever reason, I have just heard so many Christians and even a bunch of pastors say something stupid like, all sin is sin, all sin is equal. That's not true. All sin is equal in the sense that it offends God. Stealing a cookie makes you deserving of hell, just like murdering somebody makes you deserving of hell. But the Bible's clear that some sins are actually worse. Some sins come from a darker heart. Let me just give you a few quick references. In John 19.11, Jesus says to Pilate, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In Ezekiel 8, 6, when Ezekiel is being shown all the sinfulness going on, Ezekiel is told, but you will see still greater abominations, okay? In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, we've already seen this. It shows that unrepentant sin is worse than repentant sin. If you have sin and confess it, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, 1 John says. But if your sin is unrepentant, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So the Bible very clearly, not, not to mention the Numbers 15 passage we just read, does clearly say that some sins are worse than others. When you lust in your heart, you've committed heart-level adultery, but guess what's worse? Actually committing adultery. When you're angry in your heart, you've committed heart-level murder. That's bad, but guess what's worse? Actual murder. When Jesus is talking about your heart, he's not trying to say those things are just as bad. What he's trying to say is you can't just say, oh, look, but I won't touch. That God is after your heart, not just your external action. That's Jesus's point. There are places in the Bible that are very clear that some sins are worse than others, okay? But with this idea of venial and mortal sin, this is an idea that comes out of Roman Catholicism. And in Roman Catholicism, they separate two classes of sin. There's a bunch of sins in the world, but there are two classes of sin. The first is what's called a venial sin. It comes from the uh, Latin word venia, and that means pardon or forgiveness in Latin. And a venial sin is a minor sin, maybe like cursing, It's a sin that hurts the spiritual life that's in you, but it doesn't destroy the spiritual life that's in you, okay? It hurts the spiritual life that's in you, but it doesn't uh, destroy the spiritual life that's in you. It doesn't totally turn you away from God. It's more of just an action, not the kind of person you want to be. On the other hand, there are what are called mortal sins, okay? What are called mortal sins. A mortal sin in Roman Catholicism is worse, A a mortal sin is not something that just weakens the spiritual life within you. It extinguishes 
It destroys the spiritual life within you. It turns you away from God. It's more about the kind of person you want to be. Mortal sins are things like adultery and blasphemy and murder and these major things, okay? So in Roman Catholicism, you have these lighter sins, venial sins, and you have these sins that lead to condemnation. You have these things that, uh, that in a sense can't be forgiven, that you fall irreparably. And there's some variants on what different Catholic theologians believe, but that's the idea. And they get that partially here from 1 John. Notice a sin leading to death is a mortal sin. That's what mortal means, able to die. A sin that is not leading to death that can be forgiven is pardonable, venial. That's where they get that kind of language. So let me read you a quote from Thomas Aquinas to clarify this point, and then we'll talk about it. Thomas Aquinas is probably the greatest mind of the late Middle Ages, and he says, he who by sinning turns away from his last end, if we consider the nature of his sin, falls irreparably, and therefore is said to sin mortally and to deserve eternal punishment. But when a person sins without turning away from God by the very nature of his sin, his disorder can be repaired because the principle of the order is not destroyed. Here's what Aquinas is saying, okay? Imagine for a second that you're walking towards God. God is like this bright light and you're walking towards God. When you commit a venial sin, it's just like you stumble and fall, but you're still facing God. You just get back up and you keep walking. Or you're walking towards God and you kind of go off the path a little bit and then you come back onto the path. That's a venial sin. A mortal sin though, what it does and the reason why it can't be forgiven in Catholic theology is because it's more like you're walking towards the light, you're walking towards God and then you do an about face and you're no longer facing God anymore. The reason it can't be forgiven is because you're walking away from grace. You're walking away from the source of forgiveness, okay? So that's one view of these passages that it's venial versus mortal sins. Now, what is the problem with that interpretation? You ready? There are a bunch of people in the Bible who commit mortal sins and they're still forgiven. Moses murders a guy and buries him in the sand. David murders a guy. David commits adultery. These are all mortal sins and these people are all forgiven. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says that he was a blasphemer. So apparently blasphemy can be forgiven, okay? So you see in all these things, we see constantly in the Bible, people commit mortal sins and they're forgiven. So that's a big problem with this theory, okay? Additionally, here's something that's really interesting when I talk to Protestants like, like you guys uh, about Catholic theology is they will say, Zach, that whole Catholic idea of venial versus mortal sin is so ridiculous. There are no mortal sins. They're all venial. What's really ironic about that is Martin Luther in the Reformation actually said the problem with the Catholic diversification of sins is that all sins are mortal. There are no venial sins. All sins turn you away from God. All sins destroy the grace that's in you. All sins are not safe. All sins condemn you. There's no venial sins. They're all mortal, which is why you need Christ. He is your only hope. It's Christ or absolute damnation. Those are the only two options, okay? Those are the only two options. So I don't think that solves our problem of this whole sin leading to death, sin not leading to death thing. Third option. Maybe the sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, okay? Maybe the sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Back in the Gospels, Jesus says that every sin will be forgiven man except for one, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says that that is an eternal sin. It will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Is that what John is talking about? Well, first of all, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let's explain the context here. Where this occurs in the Gospels, Jesus is very clearly, by the power of the Spirit, healing people, casting out demons, and doing these miracles. Okay, it's very clear this is a work from God. And the Pharisees step up and they say, this is the power of Satan. And what Jesus is saying is, wait a second here, guys. You're about to step over a line. This is clearly a work of God, and you're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, okay? And he says, you guys better back up is basically the idea. That's a paraphrase. That's a paraphrase. That's kind of the idea. So notice that blasphemy against the spirit is to intentionally, knowingly, habitually, and unrepentantly attribute the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. I'm not even sure this sin can be committed today, right? Part of the things the Pharisees are seeing is all these miracles and saying that's from Satan. I'm not even sure that this can happen outside of the earthly ministry of Jesus, okay? But if it can... It's not something that a Christian can commit. If you're a Christian and you're worried that you've committed blasphemy against the Spirit, you have not. If you love and trust Jesus, you've not done it. Notice, the Pharisees never come back and repent. 
The Pharisees see that this is a work of God and they don't care. They keep slandering that work and they never repent. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not something a Christian can commit. That's the idea of what's going on. There's an interesting passage where this occurs also where Jesus says that if you blaspheme him, you'll be forgiven, but not if you blaspheme the Spirit. Well, why does he say that? That's not because the Spirit's better, right? The Son and the Father and the Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. They're all equally great. The reason Jesus says that is because the Pharisees don't know and don't believe that he's the Son of God, but they clearly are seeing the work of the Spirit. There's something about knowing that they're blaspheming the Spirit, which is part of that sin. Now, the problem with that is that that's not the context here of 1 John, okay? That's not what's going on when John says this here in 1 John. He's not talking about blasphemy against the Spirit. If anything, John's opponents are fine with the Holy Spirit. They say they're very spiritual. We've seen that elsewhere in the letter. It's Christ that they don't like. It's atonement that they don't like. So I don't think that can be the, the, the sin that John's talking about. A fourth option. Have, are we beating this dead horse? Are you having fun in your home looking at your TV or whatever as we do this and just talk about sin and condemnation? It gets better. Let's keep going. The fourth option is that maybe John is talking about what is called apostasy. Maybe the sin that leads to death is denying Christ and walking away from the faith. That's what apostasy is. The Greek word Uh, apa means away from, and then stasis means to stand. So apostasy is to stand away from the truth, to stand away from the gospel, to stand away from Christ. Maybe that's the sin John's talking about. What's the problem with that interpretation? Can we think of anyone in scripture who ever commits apostasy and is still forgiven? Yeah, the apostle Peter commits apostasy twice. He denies Christ in the gospels three times, denies Christ, and Christ forgives him. But then he does it again In Galatians, he so forsakes the gospel that Paul has to rebuke him and Paul says that he stood condemned. Peter commits apostasy twice and he's forgiven. So that can't be the sin that John is talking about. Now, okay, maybe Zach, maybe maybe we're on the wrong wrong path here. Maybe by sins that lead to death, it means physical death. There are sins that you do that don't physically kill you. And then there are other sins that do physically kill you where either God kills you or it's a consequence of your sin. You think of somebody who does drugs who has a drug overdose. You could say that's a sin that leads to death. Well, there is some biblical precedent for this. In the book of Acts, there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they intentionally lie to the apostles as the apostles are trying to start the church at this nascent Christianity, and God kills them. Not for not giving money to the church, but for lying. There's another example in 1 Corinthians where the people are abusing communion. They're getting drunk at communion, which means they're using wine, And they're eating too much of the bread so that other Christians don't even have any. And it says that because they're taking communion in an unworthy way, they're not honoring Christ and not honoring the church, that God kills them, that some have uh, died because of that, okay? So that is true. It is the case that if you're a Christian and you're in unrepentant sin, sometimes God will kill you and take you home early so you don't continue in your sin. That's true. The problem with that here in 1 John, though, is every single reference in 1 John to the idea of life has been spiritual life, not just like physical life. So I don't think it fits the context. Okay, that's what it doesn't mean. What then, Zach, does it mean to talk about sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death? Here's what you have to keep in mind. Context. When we read verses 16 and 17, we step away from the rest of 1 John and we just say, oh, what does this mean? And speculative theology. You have to keep in mind the context of John's letter. The kind of sins that lead to death is what John's opponents are committing. John's opponents are denying the deity of Christ, denying the humanity of Christ, denying that they need atonement, denying that they need forgiveness, walking in sexual immorality and starting their own weird cult church instead of belonging to John's apostolic church. And what John is saying is that leads to death. To unrepentantly be a heretic, to unrepentantly not seek salvation in Orthodox Christianity is to be somebody who is going to hell. That's his point. That's his point, okay? Let let me give you a great quote by a New Testament scholar named Robert Yarbrough. I think is really helpful here. He says this. I'm gonna read it twice because I think it's really key for this text. Sin that leads to death is probably sin that is one, unrepented of, and two, of the kind or nature that John has warned throughout the letter. Resolute rejection of the true doctrine about Christ, chronic disobedience to God's commandments, persistent lack of love for fellow believers, all indications of a lack of saving faith which will not be forgiven. I'm gonna read it again because this is what this text means. Sin that leads to death is probably sin that is unrepented of and of the kind in nature that John has warned about throughout the letter. 
resolute rejection of the true doctrine about Christ, chronic disobedience to God's commandments, persistent lack of love for fellow believers, all indications of a lack of saving faith, which will not be forgiven. He goes on to say, to sin unto death is to have a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ and to persist in convictions, acts, and commitments like those who have now left John's church. That's the sin that leads to death. To be like John's opponents, to hold an unorthodox view of Christ and not care, to walk in sin and not care, to break fellowship with true Christianity, the true church, true believers, and start your own weird cult church and to unrepent or, or, and to die in unrepentance is to be condemned, is to commit a sin leading to eternal death, okay? So here's what you need to understand. This is not a sin that someone who's elect can commit. It's only a sin that someone who is reprobate can commit, okay? A reprobate, someone who's not elect, can commit this, but not a true Christian. New Testament scholar Colin Cruz says this, the sin that does not lead to death is the sin of the believer. The sin that does lead to death is most likely that of the unbeliever. So what John has been doing throughout his letter is talking about two kinds of people. There are Christians, those who follow orthodox doctrine, trust Christ, know they need forgiveness, fellowship with others. But then there are false teachers, heretics, cults, things that break away from orthodox Christianity. And to continue in that state is to be condemned, is to be condemned, okay? So there's often a question that I've gotten, and I'm sure you've probably thought this a lot is why does the Bible in some places seem to say that a true Christian can't lose their salvation, but in other places it seems to say that they can? Hopefully you've realized both, if you're being honest with the way you interpret the Bible. There are passages that seem very clearly to say you can't lose your salvation. He who began a good work in you, God, will bring it to the day of completion. That uh, in Ephesians 1, that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that that is the down payment for your future inheritance. Jesus says that nobody can snatch you out of his hand. By the way, that includes you. You're included in nobody. Paul says that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor famine, nor sword, nor anything under creation, which also includes you. You're created. You can't separate yourself from God's love. There are all these passages that say you can't lose your salvation. Yet, there are other passages that seem to scare, be, be a little bit scary, seem to say that you can lose your salvation. Beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. Or to have your name blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. Or a lot of places in Hebrews where it talks of someone who's tasted of the heavenly gifts, who's tasted of the Spirit, who then walks away, who then denies him, who then turns that there can be no forgiveness for them, that they can't come back. What do we do with that? Why do some passages seem to say that you can't lose your salvation and some seem to say that you can? Here's the answer. There's a lot of ink spilled on this. I just want to give you the answer and hopefully this will be helpful. Though all of the Bible is God's word, there are some passages that are written from God's perspective And there are some passages that are meant to be interpreted from our perspective, okay? Let me say that again. Though all the Bible's God's word, some passages are written from God's perspective and some are written from our perspective. Here's what I mean by that. When the Bible says that the sun set, the sun doesn't literally set from God's perspective. The earth goes around the sun, okay? When it says the sun sets, that's from a human perspective. It's not saying that's how it is actually. It's saying from our vantage point on earth, it looks like the sun sets, Or if you've ever been at a stoplight, and I hate when this happens, I'll be at a stoplight and a car beside me will slowly start to move up and it feels like I'm going backwards. I'm not, but from my perspective, it feels that way. So I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I'm going backwards somehow and I slam on the brake, but my foot was already on the brake and I realized, okay, it just looked that way because this other car was moving. That's how you understand this issue. In reality, in actuality, can a true Christian one who God has actually regenerated, who is God's elect, lose their salvation. No, to even suggest that you can is blasphemy. It says that God can fail. God knows the ultimate number of people that will be saved for all eternity and that number can't change because God knows it, okay? So no, you can't act. How does God forgive you of your sins and then unforgive you? It's already been paid for. How does God adopt you into his family? Does he put you back up for adoption? Someone who's really a Christian cannot lose their salvation, The passages that seem to say that you can is, listen, written from our perspective. For to us, it looks like someone lost their salvation. In reality, they never had it to begin with. But from our perspective, it looks like here's a person who seemed to have the spirit. Here's a person who seemed to walk in holiness. And then they walked away from the faith, okay? So that's how you need to understand passages like this. Real elect Christians cannot fall away from God. But part of their evidence that they're really elect is that they continue in the faith. 
To say it another way, once saved, always saved is true, but it only works as long as you were once saved. As long as you were once saved, okay? Look at this next part. I do not say that one should pray for that, okay? He's not saying you can't pray for whoever you want. You can pray for whoever you want. Pray for lost people, pray for heretics, pray for friends, pray for whoever you want. What he's saying is you're not required to cast your pearls before swine. For somebody like John's opponents who deny Christ, deny atonement, hold heretical views, start their own church and don't want to repent, the Bible says you are not called to pursue them. You are not called to continue praying for them, okay? You actually see precedent for this elsewhere in the Bible. John 17, nine, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Notice that, unlimited atonement people. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jeremiah 7, 16, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's what he's saying. You can pray for everyone. It's not saying you can't. It's saying, he's saying this, when your brother's in sin, pray for them. For somebody who doesn't care and has this hard heart, you're not required to continue this ministry of prayer intercession for that person. Verse 17, we're almost done. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death, okay? Now, when he says all wrongdoing is sin, this is just a helpful phrase. What is sin? Any type of wrongdoing. But how do we define wrongdoing? We don't define it the way we want to define it. I've heard people say, you know if something's a sin, because you just know it deep down in your heart. That's not true. The only way you know something is sinful is because of the Bible. Our consciences are broken. Our hearts are broken. Stop listening to your conscience. Your conscience is a liar. It's right sometimes, okay? You sometimes listen to it and you sometimes don't. How do you know which one you should do? Bible. Jeff gave an excellent illustration last, uh, last week talking about assurance where he said that he had a car that you could fill up the gas tank, but the gauge would still say it was empty. Or conversely, the, the, the tank might not have any gas and the gas gauge say that it's full. The gauge was broken and you couldn't trust it. It was right sometimes. There were probably some times where the tank was full and the gauge said it was full, but you couldn't trust it. It was unreliable. That's like your conscience. Your conscience is unreliable. So the way that you ultimately know if something is sinful or not is only by looking at scripture. And so what John is doing in all of this is simply saying this. There are sins that a Christian commits Pray for those in sin. There are sins that non-Christians commit that lead to death, like John's opponents. You don't have to pursue that. Not that you can't, but you don't have to continue in this ministry of prayer intercession for those people. That's all he's trying to say in this very difficult, very short section of 1 John. Now, what do we do with this then today? Okay, Zach, cool. John has some opponents. They're weird. They're not gonna be forgiven. What do we do with this? Let me give you some practical pastoral advice to end our lesson this morning. A few things, eight thoughts on this, practical steps on how to avoid walking in sin, how to avoid falling away, which I don't think you can do as a Christian, but if you do, it shows you weren't a Christian. Let's go over some of these points. The first one is this. There are no safe sins, okay? There are no safe sins. When it talks about sins not leading to death, that doesn't mean that they're somehow safe or they're okay. Little sins quickly become big sins. Every person that I've ever met who's committed adultery, It didn't just, they didn't wake up one day and then commit adultery. They made a thousand compromises before that ever happened. They start thinking that God doesn't love them. They start thinking that they're not forgiven. That makes them hate God because they think God hates them. Then they start thinking impure thoughts. Then they start looking at impure images. They start fighting with their spouse and don't appreciate them. They start flirting with their secretary and then they're in a full-blown affair. How did I get here? Well, it started two years ago when you started with these little sins. So little sins quickly become big sins. Second thing, you cannot manage sin. It must be killed. I think many of us haven't taken our idols and just taken a hammer to them and destroyed them. We just try to manage our big sins. We take our idols and we hide them in a closet or something like that. You must destroy. You must fight sin with all your might. Crush your idols. You cannot manage sin. Sin will always push you farther than you want to go. Okay, it'll always push you far. It's like a gateway drug. You start with something little and then you're doing something big. That's always what happens with sin. It's kind of like, okay, so if I'm uh, ever in a pool, like in the summertime, and I've got my kids or nephews or nieces or whatever, and they're like, hey, Uncle Zach, will you throw me in the pool? Sure. And I start very, uh, with a little splash. 
I'll take the kid. I'm like, all right, you ready? Oh, and I just throw them in the water and they laugh and it's fun. But eventually I get bored. And so by the end of it, I'm like, are you ready? And I'm like spinning them and throwing them 20 feet in the air. And they're like, no, you know, and they're falling in the pool and then they cry and all these kind of things. That's what sin, sin is like me in a pool. That's what sin does. It pushes you further than you want to go, okay? Number three, unrepentant sin makes your heart hard. Repent before your conscience becomes seared. It's a dangerous and scary place to be where you're committing sin and you think, I don't care. I don't care. If that's you though, there's grace. Pray, let us pray for you so that God might give you grace. God can unsear your conscience. He can unharden your heart. Number four, if you know of a Christian in sin, lovingly ask them about it, okay? Pray for them and lovingly ask them about the sin. Have some tact. Don't go up and say, I see that you've committed this sin. You should be like me because I'm a good Bible boy. Something like that. Instead, you should say something like, hey man, I just wanted to ask you about something because I love you and uh, I've got my own sins, so I'm not trying to sound like a hypocrite, but tell me about this thing going on in your life. Have some tact when you do it. Number five, are there any sins you are justifying? Are there any sins you're justifying? The human heart, because it's wicked, will justify sin will act as though it's not that bad or not that sinful. I'll give you a great example. This happened at another church where I was pastoring. I was talking to a couple and uh, doing some marriage counseling and they were fighting. And I said, what is the issue? And the wife said, my husband is always checking out other women. Whether it's in the mall or in the store or at church, I always catch him just checking out other women. And I turned to him and I said, is that true? And I thought he was gonna say no. And he goes, no, I, I check out other women, but I'm not doing it in a sexual way. That's what he said. I'm not doing it in a sexual way. I'm just looking at their beauty aesthetically. In the same way you would look at a mountain, in the same way you would look at the beauty of the ocean, so I am looking at women just for beauty and nothing sexual. And I said, okay, so there's nothing sexual about it. I said, okay. So then you also are doing the same thing and looking at men, right? Because if it's not sexual at all and you're just looking at beauty, well, God has made men handsome, men who have strong jaws and a muscular physique and whatever. You should be then looking at everybody. Is that what you're doing? And he goes, no. And I said, gotcha. There is something sexual about it. You're trying to justify your sin by acting like it's not a big deal. Whereas deep down, you're just looking at women that aren't your wife. Do you know why they're so beautiful to you? Because you're a male. And so he was justifying his sin. Where are you doing that? It's not pride, Zach. It's just confidence. It's not greed. It's just providing for my family. It's not body image insecurity. I just want to look good. What is the the sin that you're justifying? Number six, confess your sins to other people, not just God. Confessing your sins to God is for forgiveness. Confessing your sins to other people is to do the very thing John is talking about, praying for one another, counseling one another, encouraging one another. James 5.16 says, quote, confess your sins one to another, okay? One to another. Number seven, are there any doctrines you are holding that Christians have not traditionally held that you need to repent of? False doctrine is sin. So let me say it this way. One, you might be off on some major doctrine. If you're holding some view on Trinity or Christ or God or something that the church has not traditionally held, that needs to be repented of. But I think with most of us in here, what's probably happening is you might hold some minor issue wrongly and to do that is still sin. So is there something you believe in Christianity that when you tell other Christians, they look at you weird? They think, what is wrong with you? That might be a place where you need to repent. Remember, false doctrine hinders your relationship with God, okay? Hinders your relationship with God. And then number eight, listen to this one. This is the most important one, okay? This is the most important one. Listen to number eight. Don't let sin take away your hope that you are loved, saved, and forgiven. Don't let sin take that away. Move on quickly when you repent, okay? Listen, God already loves you and you're already forgiven and you're already saved. God loves you, you're forgiven, and you're already saved. That's the starting line. God's love for you is not dependent upon your actions. What we do is we end up struggling with sin and because we don't seem to get better, we think God is mad at us and we don't actually love him more because we think he's mad at us. Why would you love something that you think is mad at you? And then we end up continuing in more and more sin and eventually someone walks away from the faith. That's how it happens. The way you stop apostasy from happening is you let people know how loved and accepted and forgiven they are. Do you understand? God's love for you is not based on your action. It's based on Christ. That doesn't ever change. You don't affect God. God is impassable. God is unchanging. He affects you, you don't affect him. And that's the greatest news in the world because it means no matter what you do, no matter the temper tantrums of sin you throw, God's love for you doesn't change. God's love for you doesn't change. That's the most important thing to remember. 
you will not conquer sin, one, ever this side of eternity, but you will not grow in sanctification by trying to conquer sin. You will grow in sanctification by realizing God's overwhelming love for you in the gospel. That's how it works. That's how it works. Let me end with a quote from Martin Luther, one of my favorite theologians. He has a great quote. He says this, when the devil comes at night to worry me, now that doesn't literally mean the devil is showing up. This could be Luther's own flesh, his own sin, his own conscience. It could be spiritual attack. When the devil comes at night to worry me, this is what I say to him, devil, I have to sleep now. That is God's commandment for us to work by day and sleep at night. If he keeps on nagging me and trots out my sins, then I answer, sweet devil. I love that, by the way. Sweet devil. I know the whole list, but I have done even more sin, which is not on your list. Right there also, I have feces in my breeches. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, when the devil comes to condemn me and says, Luther, look at all the sins you've committed. I say, hey, dummy, there's a bunch of sins that you didn't even put on the list. I'm way worse than that. In fact, my pants are dirty with feces. Make the list as bad as you want because my hope is in Christ, not in the fact that I'm not a sinner. Luther goes on to say, then if he won't cease to accuse me of sins, I say in contempt, holy Satan, pray for me, which is so good. He says in Latin, sancta satana ora pro me. If you're so holy, which is part of the, uh, the humor of Luther, and you really think I'm in sin, then shouldn't you be praying for me? Shouldn't you be praying for me? I love that. I love that. Here's what Luther is saying. The way you grow in holiness is by realizing you are worse than you actually think you are. There are more sins on the list than you can know. But the way that you grow in holiness is by realizing they're all forgiven in Christ. You're loved in Christ. You're perfect in Christ. Your in Christ status is everything. Focus on that and you'll grow in holiness. Focus on holiness and you won't. And you won't. Let's pray and then we will be done. Almighty God, we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your grace and we just pray that you would be with us. We thank you for this text. I pray for those that are in sin that they would repent. I pray for those who are not Christians that they would be Christians, that they would have their heart uh, enlightened. I pray that if there's somebody who's hearing this message or watching this online or whatever today that doesn't actually know you, today might be their spiritual birthday. This might be the first time they realize that being a Christian isn't about their efforts, isn't about them being a good Christian boy or girl and they would lay down their righteousness and simply cling to the mercy of Christ, that they would submit to him and repent and follow him as king. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.